You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. When companies merge, there's often litigation over whether they disclose sufficient information to investors. The litigation often results in large fees paid out to the lawyers who bring the cases, but not much money for the the investors that the lawyers are supposed to represent. But one attorney who works at the American Enterprise Institute has been objecting to settlements in these cases, and he's found a lot of success blocking lawyers from obtaining the fees that they seek. Our guest to talk about this is Caleb Hannon, a reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek, who wrote an article about the controversy over these lawsuits and about the lawyer who's trying to stop them this week. Caleb, these cases often settle, usually do. They're called disclosure-only settlements by a lot of people. Explain what that means. So let's say that two large public companies merge. Um, In the past 10 years, you saw a relative explosion in the number of times that a plaintiff's attorney brought a class action suit um, for that settlement. So it used to be that it may be like half the time it happened. And then for the past 10 years, it was 85 to 90 percent of the time it happened. And um, you could argue about the motivations of those plaintiff's attorneys, just like in any field of law, there are good ones and there are bad ones. Um, What Ted Frank's mission has become over the past few years is basically to find the lowest hanging fruit and to pick it and to make life harder for those plaintiff's attorneys that he sees as taking advantage of the system. And tell us, does he just go after these settlements, this disclosure-only settlements that are involved, or are there other class actions that he goes after? No, disclosure only are really, as I said before, the lowest hanging fruit because the disparity between what the lawyers get and what the class gets is so obvious. The class gets, let's say, 12 to 20 pages of documents that weren't disclosed before, uh, much of which that information is just sort of useless. And then the attorneys get hundreds of thousands, in some cases, millions of dollars. But no, Ted Frank goes after cases um, if he feels the settlement isn't good enough. He's going to go after it. And the best example there is the case that got him into all of this. Uh, He was a guy who, like a lot of people, had purchased a video game called Grand Theft Auto. And one day he got a letter and it said, you are due back some tiny percentage of the $30,000 that a group of class action attorneys got for you and other class action members. Uh, Ted did a little more research on it and found out that the lawyers, instead of getting 30000 got over a million dollars for that settlement. So on his own accord, he went up to the courthouse and said, I object, and the settlement was denied. So that was his start. His start came from a really personal 
you know, mission-driven um, beginnings. Well, Caleb, he took that and he started sort of making a crusade about this. He's on, he's, he's paid a salary by the American Enterprise Institute and he sort of does this professionally. Now, what kind of impact is he having on these lawsuits? So I think the impact could be felt um, most in the statistics about how many of these uh, cases are now drawing litigation. And that, that number has finally dipped, I believe, under the 80 percent figure, where it had never fallen below that in the past 10 years. Um, but he admits, and other, uh, other people who are on this crusade sort of admit that Really, you're just trying to slow uh, these plaintiffs' attorneys down. You're never going to stop them. So, um, for example, uh, he sometimes takes cases in jurisdictions where he knows or he hopes that uh, the case will get more attention. Um, for example, he uh, objected to a settlement um, in a jurisdiction that eventually found its way onto the desk of Judge Richard Posner, who, even if you don't follow the law, You've probably heard his name because he's just very famous. He's as famous as any judge outside of the Supreme Court. And uh, Frank got his wish. Posner wrote uh, the decision, and in that decision, he wrote that these types of uh, settlements, these disclosure-only settlements, were a racket, really meant to enrich the plaintiff's attorneys and not to bring back anything for the class. Um, so the effect he's having, it is measurable, um, but really it's it's forcing these plaintiff's attorneys to work harder. It used to be that they could just object, um, especially in places like Delaware, where a lot of these lawsuits originated, and they were almost guaranteed to get a settlement and to get a pretty favorable settlement. Now, because of precedent that Frank and others like him are setting, they're sort of having to hunt for jurisdictions, and they're having to work a lot harder. And Frank's basic goal is to make them work so hard that it just becomes too difficult and too costly for them to actually bring these suits. Caleb, in about uh, 30 seconds, tell us about the Competitive <laughs> Enterprise Institute, who supports it, and where it stands politically. Sure. So uh, if you... Um, Depending on your political perspective, the CEI is either a, a fierce defender of free market values or it's uh, an enemy of all good science. Um, it, it's, it's definitely politically loaded. Uh, it's funded by a lot of um, fairly famous uh, right-wing or li libertarian uh, causes or, or people. Um, Frank sort of is set apart from the group. They, they're, they're merely... Uh, he has a nonprofit that's under the wing of CEI. He's certainly paid by them. What's important to know is that the work he's doing uh, also gets the stamp of approval from people like the co-founder of the litigation arm of Public Citizen. All right. Well, Caleb, we're going to have to we're going to have to stop there. Our thanks to Caleb Hennon of Bloomberg Businessweek for being on Bloomberg Law. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. 
So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.